Well, hello there, and welcome to Food Lab Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bucker. Today's guest is the world's most cited nutrition scientist. And like all good scientists, he embraces complexity and follows the data and evidence, even when it challenges accepted norms. I am so excited to be joined by Dr. Walter Willett. Dr. Willett is a physician and professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chen School of Public Health in Boston, Massachusetts. He's also the co-chair of the Eat Lancet Commission on Food, Planet, Health. Eat is a global nonprofit organization dedicated to transforming our global food system through sound science, in patient disruption, and novel partnerships, which I personally love the sound of. Much of Dr. Willett's work has been on the development of methods to study the effects of diet on major diseases. And today, he presides over decades' worth of data on more than a quarter of a million people that provides truly unparalleled insights into the long-term health consequences of food choices. This, I know, is going to be a fascinating conversation. Welcome to the show, Walter. Great to be with you, Michael. So, Walter, in addition to you producing an incredible amount of work over the years, you also served as the chair of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard for over 25 years, if I'm correct. That's right. What is it exactly about nutrition and health that has kept your attention for so long? Well, nutrition and health is just an incredibly complicated but fascinating topic. And it's very dynamic. It's constantly changing in one place of the world and other places in different directions. And it brings together really all aspects of science. I actually started off in physics and mathematics, and I use that a lot in our data analysis and looking at sources of error and correcting for them in our large cohort studies, uh, brings together human biology as a physician. That's what I learned. And it brings together basic sciences. We're using uh, molecular methods now to look at, uh, of course, our genetics, but also mutations that occur in cancers using cutting-edge techniques applied to the biological samples that we have, the blood, urine, now fecal samples. So all this comes together, and it makes nutrition really interesting. And I guess as a good scientist, you're never done. There's always something more. Just more questions every day. <laughs> yeah. And I think in your role at Harvard, you study the effects of diet on health outcome. And in your role as the co-chair of the Eat Lancet Commission, you're working to answer an even bigger question. How can we feed 10 billion people a healthy diet within the planetary boundaries? What made you move from a laser focus on diet and health to now consider diet health and sustainability? Well, I've always been interested in environment more broadly and realizing, uh, having grown up in the Midwest in an agricultural kind of setting, that our production of food does have a major footprint. But uh, the urgency of dealing with the environmental issues has really become more apparent in the last several decades, and in particular climate change. It's happening so fast, happening much more rapidly than anybody realized just a couple of decades ago. And many of these changes are irreversible. We can't go backwards in time with, say, glaciers melting, the Arctic Ocean melting, the ice cap in Greenland melting. These are hugely important events that are happening. So this has, again, an urgency that doesn't apply to a lot of the other topics that we're studying 
and the irreversibility. So if we're interested in health, all of these changes are going to have major health impacts. In our Eat Lancet Commission analyses, the biggest driver of the food system and its impacts on the environment is actually the diets that we eat. And if we don't do something about them fairly quickly, uh, it's going to be a tremendous disaster. Yeah. And then I believe as well that we're now living in a change of an era, not an era of change, but a change of an era. And then some believe that we're facing a polycrisis where many systems are reaching imminent tipping points. Does that resonate with you or do you think I'm just Mr. Doom and Gloom over here? <laughs> well, yeah, you don't look like Mr. Doom and Gloom but on my screen. But uh, the reality is if we step back and look at what's happening, if we don't make some changes very quickly, things are going to get much worse, not better. We are on track for close to three degrees centigrade warming over the next century, and uh, that will be disastrous. So right now, we're on a pathway that's going in a very bad direction, both for health around the world, uh, chronic diseases, diabetes, obesity are major drivers of this. That's accelerating in many places. And again, the impact of all of this on the environment is happening so quickly that if we don't do something rapidly, it will be not possible to reverse it. And the slowing it down may be very, very difficult. You just used the term, the acceleration. And I think through your work with the Eat Lancet Commission, you've often referred to what is now known as the Great Acceleration Theory. Could you talk a little bit more about what that actually is and what it tells us about food systems complexity? Well, yes, a number of people have looked at this through different lenses and the acceleration means that, again, change is moving more rapidly. It's not just changing in a linear way, but in a nonlinear way, that's uh, acceleration. And uh, if we look at that in terms of fossil fuel consumption, if we look at that in terms of power use, if we look at that in terms of uh, chemicals put into our agricultural system, and of course, as we were just talking about, global temperature increases, all of these are increasing in a nonlinear way. And that's, uh, that's why we call this uh, a great acceleration. So if I then follow up on that, Walter, I think you're very clear in your own mind and what has been described in various reports, including the Lancet Commission report of what is going wrong and what is not great as of today. Now I get the question, what do you do about it? And the Eat Lancet Commission in its first report outlined five strategies for food system transformation. And for the listeners, check out our show notes later on to see all five. But for the conversation with you, Walter, love to dig a little deeper in a few that specifically address supply and demand. And those three are seek international and national commitment to shift towards healthy diets. Reorient agricultural priorities from producing high quantities of food to producing healthy food and sustainably intensify food production to increase high quality output. Could you talk a little bit more about those three specific strategies and how the commission came to specifically those acknowledging their three or ultimately five? Well, uh, I often cast those in a slightly different way, although those are some of the pathways, some of the strategies. But I sort of look at these as three main areas in which we need to do something. Uh, first of all, and many people have talked about this, reduce food loss and waste. Uh, that's gotten appropriately a lot of attention, and uh, that varies in whether it's losses in 
food spoiling before it gets to market in a lot of low-income countries to waste in this country where we just the food comes into the home or the food service and it gets thrown away because for one reason or another, we don't use it. But then the third pillar is changing diets. And again, looking at these three factors that if we only do one of them, uh, that won't be sufficient. We need to do all of them. But the biggest impact in our analyses is potentially changing diets. And uh, the changes in agricultural production is often going to involve a lot of research on how to produce our food in a more environmentally friendly way. Uh, and that's very appropriate. And we, we need to invest in that more. But it's interesting in the U.S., there, there are these three pillars, but the Department of Agriculture won't even talk about changing diets. And that's the most important pillar. So that those are the things that we need to change. The strategies were much about how to go about this. And I find it helpful to think of things happening at different levels. One of the important ones is international because uh, these systems are really international. Global trade is back and forth between all countries of the world. There's pluses and minus advantages and disadvantages of this international trade. But at the other end of the spectrum, there's local change that's happening or can happen. And we have to be opportunistic and work at areas where we can make change. And it's interesting that many of the things I've worked on, like smoking reduction and elimination of trans fat, has really started at very local levels, uh, restaurants and little small communities, because that's often where we can make changes most rapidly. Every time we want to make changes, there are almost always major pushbacks. There are large economic powers uh, that make, can make change sometimes almost impossible. And as we go higher up, those changes often become more difficult because the uh, big economic players are powerful there. But we can get under their cannons often at a local level and then build up. And, it's, and it has worked for many kinds of changes. So my advice or suggestion is wherever you are, you can make change and take advantage of that. If you're a leader in an international organization or a senior governmental official, yes, there's some things you can really do there. But if you're operating at a pretty local grassroots level, that's often where things get started. I think at times we glamorize the past. And my belief is specifically in the West, the diet we're having today is not the diet that we've enjoyed for the last hundred years. So we've shifted already multiple times. So when you think about shifting diets, is it from your perspective shifting towards something new? Or is it shifting, I don't want to say shifting back to what it was. And if it was what it was, what moment in time would you use as ultimately a good foundation for what it could be going forward? Well, it depends on where you are and who your grandmother was. <laughs> uh, certainly, we don't want to go back to the diets of the 1950s and 1960s. Throughout history, most of the time we ate what was available and we didn't have a lot of choice because, uh, for example, in Northern Europe, Animal products made it possible to survive in cold climate, that you could graze cattle during the summertime and butcher them uh, during the winter. Uh, you could make cheese in the summer and consume that in the cold as well. And you couldn't, uh, you couldn't have oranges and warm weather fruits at all. And preservation was more difficult. We didn't have refrigeration. We mostly had salt. So people were quite constrained as to what they could eat. As it turns out, if you happen to live in the Mediterranean countries, it was much easier to have healthy food for a 
much longer part of the year. If you live in Northern Europe or the United States, I don't think we'd want to go back to where we were uh, 40 or 50 years ago. Heart disease rates were much higher. We've actually reduced heart disease mortality by about 80% uh, since uh, the 1960s, and people are living about 10 years longer. So a lot of good things have happened. Part of it is we have some aspects of the diet that have actually improved. Of course, we've had better health care, but that's only part of the picture. If we look at the diet today, we've made some, maybe not even consciously, shifts in a healthier way. Our uh, consumption of non-hydrogenated plant oils, which are healthy, has gone way up. We actually had quite a bit of trans fat uh, 50 years ago, too, and that was definitely not good. But we were eating a lot more red meat. Consumption of that's gone down about 40%. So again, it's very complex. On average, we've made some shifts that are better, some that are worse. So it's a very complicated picture. And also, when we're looking at averages, that applies to almost no one. Uh, people with more education, more access to knowledge and the resources to act upon it are actually eating much better. Uh, people with low incomes are eating not better and oftentimes worse. So the gap by income and education, socioeconomic status has gotten much wider, partly because of more knowledge. The people where we've learned, people who, again, uh, have a, access to that knowledge and ability to act upon it are doing much, much better than they were 40 or 50 years ago. Yeah. I'm going to double click on a few things you've mentioned so far, Walter. So me personally, not being a scientist, clearly, I don't know what I don't know. But the way I perceive the world is that there is more information about the link between what we eat and our health than ever before. And I think there have been more reports published by very renowned individuals, institutions. And while that might be true, and I, you know, I question whether what I just said is true, but at the same time, it appears as well that we continue to become less healthy and probably more obese. So first question, are both hypotheses actually true? And why is it that even with more knowledge, we are actually seeing a deterioration of public health at large versus us acting upon the insights that we now have? Uh, well, I think that's not quite true. <laughs> Again, uh, the average doesn't apply to everybody. and it, We don't really have a full understanding of where we are just by looking at the average. We did look at diet quality, actually, in a paper we published. It doesn't go way back, but from the year 2000 forward. And uh, overall, diet quality did improve somewhat, but for two main reasons. One was a reduction in trans fat. And that was an example where most people got a huge benefit by not needing to make any change in their behavior. We could fix it at the source. And if we can do some of that, those kinds of fixes, actually ideal public health fix, fix it upstream. And so people don't have to change their behavior. We could do more of that with sodium reduction. There's a, there's a lot of room for doing that kind of change as well. And the other major factor that changed was quite a large reduction, about a 30% reduction in sugar-sweetened beverages during that period of time. In the last few years, we haven't made improvements. It's been pretty flat. But again, uh, the numbers I gave are looking overall. And going back to the 1960s, polyunsaturated fat intake has gone up about two and a half fold since that time. Again, mostly 
in the background without people saying, I'm going to eat more polyunsaturated fat. But the margarines have improved. They were hard margarines there with very high trans, very little polyunsaturated fat. Uh, manufacturing of margarines has improved. And more people are picking up uh, parts of the Mediterranean diet. Actually, we've seen olive oil consumption go up about tenfold uh, in the United States, uh, which will have positive benefits if you're using that to replace animal fats in particular. So it's a mix. But if we look at the low-income countries, unfortunately, most of the changes are headed in a bad direction. Obesity is going up faster than in the United States, and almost like night follows day, diabetes rates are skyrocketing. We know that a lot of bad things will happen, building on that uh, trajectory as well. Cardiovascular disease, eye disease, uh, kidney disease, all, all of those are starting to emerge, but the, the worst is yet to come in many parts of the world. So in some ways, that's what makes nutrition interesting, that it's very dynamic. Uh, it's happening at different places, different rates uh, all over the world. The obesity epidemic, though, that you mentioned, that is something that most parts of the world are experiencing, and poor diet quality is certainly contributing to that. Again, there's socioeconomic differences that are important, but clearly less activity, more screen time is playing a role in that. But it's also, I think, useful to look around the world. Not every country is experiencing the obesity epidemic like we are in the United States and most countries that uh, France is actually, especially in women, plateaued, maybe, maybe actually going down a bit. In Japan, the prevalence of obesity in Women is still about 5%, really hasn't changed much at all over the past 40 or 50 years. It's 42% in the United States, and it's not that because Japan is so poor they can't afford to eat. I think a lot of this is related to culture. So I think what I hear you say loud and clear, it is much more nuanced than black and white. This has happening or that hasn't happened. You've been around in the nutrition side for quite a while. When you look back over the 25 years, do you feel and do you look back as so much has really improved and I'm excited about the progress made and I'm optimistic about the future? Is it more balanced or is it ultimately you are a little bit more pessimistic? Where might I find you today, Walter? Yeah, that's a good question. Somewhere in the middle, of course. <laughs> but uh, we've learned a lot during the last uh, really uh, 45, 50 years since I've started working in this area. And uh, for example, we were told we should eat a lot of margarine. It turned out that was high in trans fat, not so good. We were told we should try to avoid all types of fat. And that was a bad mistake because people loaded up on carbohydrate. And we've learned that the type of fat is really much more important than the amount. And also that the type of carbohydrate is very important as, as well. So just even looking at the big picture, uh, we made some very uh, major improvements and changes. Uh, well, at least we've learned a lot more. Now, the question is, uh, are we taking advantage of that new knowledge? And that's where we're not doing so well. But... Uh, some of these things take time to change. If we look back at smoking, again, we've learned a lot from that. And that's even something that's strongly addictive, that uh, when I started off uh, as a student even at the School of Public Health, faculty were smoking while they were giving lectures, the people were doing seminars smoking. And just to think, in fact, uh, even in medical school, I sold cigarettes in the medical school entranceway there. That was what the Honor Society did. <laughs> it's just hard to imagine that 
it was actually happening not so long ago. At today, our whole medical area, you can't smoke at all, uh, even outside. And um, I rarely see anybody smoking anymore. So that took a lot of effort by, again, local communities, local organizations, building up bands uh, and uh, in restaurants. Uh, although at the national level, there actually is still in the United States no uh, ban on smoking in restaurants. It's been sort of built up locally. So it is an example where change came to a large extent from the bottom up there. Although in states, uh, taxes certainly help, but most of that was at the state level. So I think uh, looking back at where we're going nutritionally and your question is, are, are we optimists or pessimists? I think we have to be patient for one thing uh, and change is possible. Uh, and I think we are slowly moving in a better direction. But there's uh, pushbacks and challenges at, uh, at every step. Yeah. And if I can just be Mr. Downer for a moment and talk about the challenges. So it feels to me that we're in a society where everything is polarized. And I will find the individuals that I trust. And I might trust my neighbor or a friend on social media more than I trust a scientist. So we're in this interesting period of time where I think more than ever, the science and scientists are being questioned. And I think an example that is quite often being said as it relates to nutrition, well, you told me 30 years ago that I should eat more fat, less fat, and now you're telling me it's the other way around. Why should I trust you as of today? So I'm just curious how it feels to you as actually an individual who has spent his whole life pursuing the science and when you hear those kind of uh, criticisms. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, uh, that's, uh, it is a serious issue. Uh, by the way, I, I wasn't telling you not to eat fat 30 years ago, but, so, but uh, that's, that's damaging. And I, I realized at that time, uh, even though I didn't really have the answer, I realized what was being said had no, really no scientific backing. It, it wasn't uh, malicious advice. It was people just sort of taking their best guess on almost no evidence. And I think what's really important is that we have better data so we can provide more reliable advice because there's really damage done in giving advice that's uh, wrong, uh, even if it was well-intended at that time. So uh, the first thing is to really try to have better evidence, try to have better data to be, in fact, be more reliable than we've been in the past. And of course, we'll always be in a situation where we never have perfect data, that we're always having to make some judgment about what's most reliable. Uh, but of course, now a lot of, we're in an era where there's a lot of active disinformation and purposeful undermining, trying to undermine science because sometimes it's inconvenient. That is damaging and uh, it's become more effective now because of more sophisticated kind of uh, now using artificial intelligence to be deceptive. And we're seeing that more and more. So things are perhaps getting worse there. And just the, anybody can say anything and be an authority on the internet. Um, so it, it has made it more difficult for people who want good information to have good information. But still, that's hard to counter the active disinformation uh, that's, that's out there. Where we go with that, I, I'm not sure. I, obviously, again, we have to do our homework and, and make, provide the best information that we can and uh, probably try to work better with people who are experienced in communication to uh, understand how to convey that information, especially to the broader public in a, in a more effective way. Now, part of it is 
that I think is important is to also acknowledge uncertainty rather than saying, oh, this is the way it truly is to where we don't have the final answer to say, based on the best kind of evidence we have today, this is what we think. Yeah. As I understand it, Walter, the commission's work is not finished yet, and you're currently finalizing the follow-up report due sometime in 2025. Are there new subjects that you're going to be covering in that report that might make us uncomfortable, that are worthwhile sharing already? Well, that is an important point. Uh, and we are going to be adding a separate section on justice uh, that we didn't cover before. And that can happen at several levels. But uh, just globally, this is a big issue. And we've seen this in the climate change area, where low and middle income countries are saying that essentially we didn't create the climate change problem. It's the the global north, the rich countries that burned all that fossil fuel and put all that greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. And now you're telling us that we have to cut back. And we're not burning much now, and we didn't cause the problem in the first place. We deserve to burn some more fossil fuel. Now, that's a difficult conversation because everybody's going to suffer in the long run uh, if low and middle income countries burn more fossil fuel, and they're going to suffer particularly. But still, I can see they're point uh, that uh, why should they be asked to do something, you know, fix something that we didn't cause, and we deserve to have better lives as well. Uh, now, that applies to food as well, that essentially the rich countries, the global north, have contributed enormously to the climate change problem by their diets. So these are all interconnected. And then we're saying, well, the Amazon really needs to be preserved because that's really important for greenhouse gas mitigation. Uh, but in the Midwest, we got rich because we cut down our forests in Michigan, where I live. In. And uh, why shouldn't they be allowed to cut down their forests as well to get rich? That's a tough question. And I think it's going to take some sort of compensation uh, support to try to correct for some of those imbalances. We can't expect that people are going to stay poor because we don't want them to cut down their forests and get rich. It sounds to me that if you, you work good out for later this year to ultimately come to some conclusion recommendations in that field yes uh, i think these are tough questions and uh we, we, we're going to try to grapple with them even if we admit we can't come to a perfect solution but these are voices that are being heard and uh, they're reasonable voices yeah throughout your career you've done all kinds of different things if you would meet now a person young eager to make impact in food systems, whatever the impact might be. What advice might you have, Walter, for a person ready to get going? What to do, what not to do, who to partner with? General learnings, insights based on your illustrious career. Well, that's a good question because I do get uh, questions like that from students. Uh, it's interesting, in the last several years, I think it would be fair to say that most of our people applying for our program in nutrition have wanted to do something in the planetary health and nutrition area. And I think that's not surprising. If they're an inquisitive, thoughtful person and look at the world around them, they'll realize we are headed toward a bad situation. And that's going to be in their lifetime for sure. It's already bad in many parts of the world and in many places because climate change is accelerating. 
so they would like to do something. And uh, I think that just a few years ago, we had to describe, oh, things are changing and describe things are headed in the direction that's not going to be good. Now they all come in understanding that and want to do something about it. It's, they have the question that you ask. And it's a hard question to answer because uh, there, uh, there are not a lot of jobs out there that just say climate change, nutrition and climate change expert uh, that... I think still it's really important to have a sound foundation in human biology and sound foundation in epidemiology and biostatistics, uh, no matter almost anything that you work in that's related to human health. That's going to be very valuable. Or even if you don't work directly in human health, those skills are going to be very important to have uh, good quantitative skills. And part of this is that the reality is that people who are sort of working at the highest levels on this are going to come up through different pathways and developing, coming with something where you're really strong and can provide high-level expertise, whether it be nutritional epidemiology, which is where I work, or uh, some agricultural areas. There are pathways there to come there, the earth science areas, which are to a large extent, geography and physics are areas that people are coming in uh, that pathway or statistical modeling. So again, a lot of ways to become involved. And the reality is nobody's going to be expert in all of these. So there's no one single pathway to uh, the, uh, the place where someone would like to go. And uh, developing a very solid strength in at least one or several of these, but learning to talk to each other and other experts in other areas is, is part of uh, what we need to do. I hope we'll be able to prepare people better for the future than we were prepared. None of us were prepared for this uh, in our own training. And I would always add to that as well, which I think is, is patience. Because if you want to make impact in a system, you have to accept the complexity and it just takes a long period of time. And I think for many of us, you see that the world is on fire. You want to do something today. But as an individual, it is extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, to make that impact at scale. So there's, I think, ongoing tension between the desire to make impact and then to think through the timing of that as well as your true impact. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's partly why I think for anybody, I say, look at where you are uh, and start off working there if you can. You know, ultimately, you'd, uh, at a much larger scale, you'd like to have an impact. But if you don't have control of the dials and the levers uh, at that level, your own food service and wherever you happen to be working or studying can often be improved a lot. And you learn a lot from that experience. Uh, uh, I certainly have. If you're uh, in the healthcare area, working with patients in ways that would help them. Uh, have more sustainable, healthy diets. Uh, a lot to be done in that area. Ultimately, a lot of this does depend on individuals making changes. And if uh, it can make a difference what we have for dinner tonight. Uh, and shifting toward a more plant-based, healthy diet uh, would be a good thing to do if we're not already there. Uh, partly, we learn about how to do that. If we're not experienced in that, that helps other people. As we set examples. Uh, even these small changes are important because they can grow into bigger changes, even if that particular meal doesn't make a difference. I totally agree. And I think we can all do our part one step, one day at a time. Absolutely. With that, Walter, I want to thank you for truly a wonderful conversation, for you sharing your insight. It's been absolutely delightful. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I'm really grateful that you're taking on this challenge uh, in your podcast. 
Reflecting on today's interview, here are my three top takeaways for change makers. There are truly many diverse pathways to solving complex challenges. Each path, whether that might be epidemiology, earth sciences, or mathematics, contributes unique insights and solutions. By embracing this diversity, we can enrich our change-making toolkit. The key to success lies in recognizing our individual strengths and weaknesses, teaming up with those who enhance our capabilities, and forging partnerships that amplify our collective impact. Change resembles a pyramid, with the biggest opportunities often emerging from the grassroots or the base. Walter explained how initiating change at the local level typically faces less opposition compared with change at a national or global scale. That doesn't mean, however, these changes aren't creating material impact. In some instances, like local bans on trans fat, a groundswell of community-level action can shift social norms. And lastly, systemic challenges require systemic changes. In Walter's example of improving nutrition-related outcomes in the U.S., he shared several actions that perpetuated better choices. These included upstream reductions in sodium, food policy changes, and increased data information to inform nutrition guidance. No single solution would have swayed the system, but collectively, they had a positive impact on public health. For more information about the Eat Lancet Commission and the research from today's episode, be sure to check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast at foodlabtalk.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. And to be sure to follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Food Lab Talk. As we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and take whatever action you can take toward a better food system. Imagine, believe, and most importantly, act. See you next time.